This is the Poetry Foundation's Essential American Poets podcast. Essential American Poets is an online audio poetry collection. The poets in the collection were selected in 2006 by Donald Hall when he was Poet Laureate. Recordings of the poets he selected are available online at poetryfoundation.org and poetryarchive.org. In this edition of the podcast, we'll hear poems by Billy Collins. Billy Collins was born in New York City in 1941. He earned his M.A. and Ph.D. in English from the University of California, Riverside, where he focused on British Romantic poetry. Collins stands out as one of contemporary America's most popular poets. His books are bestsellers, and his verse appeals to both the literary establishment and new readers. Often heard on public radio, his live readings also draw large audiences. The humor and mischief in Collins's poems may partially explain his widespread popularity, but alongside the comedy and irony, his work explores more serious preoccupations. Collins's poetry is based on familiarity, both with the reader and in choice of setting. He frequently addresses the reader directly as a way to develop what he calls a temporary companionship and prefers the term hospitable to accessible for his poetry. In keeping with this, many of his poems open with a domestic scenario, but this common, intimate ground might change into something stranger by the close of the poem. Collins served two terms as Poet Laureate of the United States, from 2001 to 2003. While Poet Laureate, he established the Poetry 180 program for poems to be read in high schools. Collins is an English professor at Lehman College in the Bronx, where he has taught for over 30 years. He lives in Summers, New York. The following five poems were recorded in Chicago in 1997. Nostalgia. Remember the 1340s? We were doing a dance called the catapult. You always wore brown, the color craze of the decade. And I was draped in one of those capes that were popular, the ones with unicorns and pomegranates and needlework. Everyone would pause for beer and onions in the afternoon, and at night we would play a game called Find the Cow. (laughs) Everything was hand-lettered then, not like today. Where has the summer of 1572 gone? Brocade and sonnet marathons were the rage. We used to dress up in the flags of rival baronies and conquer one another in cold rooms of stone. Out on the dance floor, we were all doing the struggle while while your sister practiced the Daphne all alone in her room. We borrowed the jargon of farriers for our slang. These days, language seems transparent, a badly broken code. The 1790s will never come again. Childhood was big. People would take walks to the very tops of hills and write down what they saw in their journals without speaking. Our collars were high and our hats were extremely soft. We would surprise each other with alphabets made of twigs. It was a wonderful time to be alive, or even dead. (laughs) I am very fond of the period between 1815 and 1821. Europe trembled while we sat still for our portraits. And I would love to return to 1901, if only for a moment, time enough to wind up a music box and do a few dance steps. Or shoot me back to 1922 or 1941. 
or at least let me recapture the serenity of last month when we picked berries and glided through afternoons in a canoe. Even this morning would be an improvement over the present. <laughs> I was in the garden then, surrounded by the hum of bees and the Latin names of flowers, watching the early light flash off the windows of the greenhouse and silver the limbs on the rows of dark hemlocks. As usual, I was thinking about the moments of the past, letting my memory rush over them like water rushing over the stones on the bottom of a stream. I was even thinking a little about the future, that place where people are doing a dance we cannot imagine, a dance whose name we can only guess. Thank you. Man in Space All you have to do is listen to the way a man sometimes talks to his wife at a table of people and notice how intent he is on making his point even though her lower lip is beginning to quiver. And you will know why the women in science fiction movies who inhabit a planet of their own are not pictured making a salad or reading a magazine when the men from Earth arrive in their rocket why they are always standing in a semicircle with their arms folded, their bare legs set apart, their breasts protected by hard metal discs. This next poem is called Aristotle, and it arose out of reading uh, Aristotle's poetics where he enunciates for the first time, I suppose, a notion very common to us, which is that a literary work has uh, three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Aristotle. This is the beginning. Almost anything can happen. This is where you find the creation of light, a fish wriggling onto land, the first word of paradise lost on an empty page. Think of an egg, the letter A, a woman ironing on a bare stage as the heavy curtain rises. This is the very beginning. The first-person narrator introduces himself, tells us about his lineage. The mezzo-soprano stands in the wings. Here the climbers are studying a map or pulling on their long woolen socks. This is early on, years before the ark, dawn. The profile of an animal is being smeared on the wall of a cave, and you have not yet learned to crawl. This is the opening, the gambit, a pawn moving forward an inch. This is your first night with her, your first night without her. This is the first part, where the wheels begin to turn, where the elevator begins its ascent, before the doors lurch apart. This is the middle. Things have had time to get complicated, messy, really. Nothing is simple anymore. Cities have sprouted up along the rivers, teeming with people at cross-purposes, a million schemes, a million wild looks. Disappointment unshoulders his knapsack here and pitches his ragged tent. This is the sticky part where the plot congeals, where the action suddenly reverses or swerves off in an outrageous direction. Here the narrator devotes a long paragraph to why Miriam does not want Edward's child. Someone hides a letter under a pillow. Here the aria rises to a pitch, a song of betrayal salted with revenge and the climbing party is stuck on a ledge halfway up the mountain. 
This is the bridge, the painful modulation. This is the thick of things. So much is crowded into the middle. The guitars of Spain, piles of ripe avocados, Russian uniforms, noisy parties, lakeside kisses, arguments heard through a wall. Too much to name, too much to think about. And this is the end. The car running out of road, the river losing its name in an ocean, the long nose of the photographed horse touching the white electronic line. This is the colophon, the last elephant in the parade, the empty wheelchair and pigeons floating down in the evening. Here the stage is littered with bodies. The narrator leads the characters to their cells and the climbers are in their graves. It is me hitting the period and you closing the book. It is Sylvia Plath in the kitchen and St. Clement with an anchor around his neck. This is the final bit, thinning away to nothing. This is the end, according to Aristotle, what we have all been waiting for, what everything comes down to, the destination we cannot help imagining, a streak of light in the sky, a hat on a peg, and outside the cabin, falling leaves. Morning. Why would anyone bother with the rest of the day, the swale of the afternoon, the sudden dip into evening, then night with his notorious perfumes, his many-pointed stars? This is the best, throwing off the light covers, feet on the cold floor, and buzzing around the house on espresso. Maybe a splash of water on the face, a palm full of vitamins, but mostly buzzing around the house on espresso, dictionary and atlas open on the rug, the typewriter waiting for the key of the head, a cello on the radio, and, if necessary, the windows, trees, fifty, a hundred years old out there, heavy clouds on the way, and the lawn steaming like a horse in the early morning. Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. It is as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain to a little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye, and you watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower, perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. Well, on your own way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim, and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Thank you. Thank you.
That was Billy Collins, recorded in Chicago in 1997 and used by permission of the author. You have been listening to the Essential American Poets podcast, produced by the Poetry Foundation in collaboration with PoetryArchive.org. To learn more about Billy Collins and other Essential American Poets, and to hear more poetry, go to PoetryFoundation.org.